Thank you, Gabe. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here today. Um, there was a message that popped up on my, uh, it was on my Instagram feed this past week, and it said this, almost everyone you meet is insecure, overwhelmed, and under-encouraged. Now, if you're here this morning and you're feeling that, if you are feeling insecure, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling discouraged, you're in the majority. That is where most people are at. As a matter of fact, this was only reinforced by something that I read in a magazine this past week. It was an article in The Atlantic. It's asking the question, what's one of the greatest killers in the United States? And it could be one that you haven't thought of. It's the pain of despair. And the article went on to say that it's suicide, alcohol, and drug poisonings. To put it bluntly, middle-aged white Americans are dying of <clears throat> excuse me, despair. And if you're familiar with the pain of despair, you know what this article is talking about. You can define despair this way. The complete loss or absence of hope. You see, the opposite of despair is hope. It's when you believe something good is going to happen in the future. Now, that's, that's different than suffering. There's many of you here this morning that are suffering. You can feel it. It could be because you've lost someone. It could be because you have a physical suffering. But suffering and despair are not the same thing. You see, you can be suffering and still have hope. If you've lost a loved one, and you believe that they had put their faith in Christ before they died, and you put your faith in Christ, then you have the hope that you're going to see them again someday. The scriptures say we, we grieve, but not as one who has no hope. And even if you didn't know that they would put their faith in Christ, there's still some hope that maybe they did and they hadn't told you about it. Or maybe you're in pain and you're suffering physically. But yet you know that if you, if you take something, that it's going to make the pain go away. Or maybe you've learned how to cope with the pain so it doesn't leave you with a sense of dread and despair. But I also know this morning that there are a number of people feeling that sense of hopelessness. Christians are not immune to those feelings of despair and to pain. As a matter of fact, if I were to take a survey right now of this room, I know that a number of people here are experiencing pain, hopelessness, and maybe even suffering and despair. Now, if you're not going through that, you probably know someone who is, and you've been watching them suffer through it, maybe for a long time. You've wondered, how can I help this person, and you're not sure. Well, in the course of this morning, what I want to focus on is both helping the sufferer, helping the person in despair, as well as taking a look at the own sense of despair that you may be suffering with yourself. As a matter of fact, the passage will see Christ giving us an example of how to help a despairing person. And the subject I want to talk about today is how do I encourage someone in despair and suffering? Looking at both how to help someone and looking inwardly at our own suffering that we may be experiencing. The passage comes from John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 of John chapter 5. In that passage, Jesus heals a man who'd been paralyzed 
for 38 years. But prior to that healing, we see a man who is in a sense of hopelessness and despair. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. need that. <clears throat> After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd at the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. You may be seated. So we're working our way through the book of John, seeing Christ as our living hope. As a matter of fact, I can offer you no other hope in this world beyond Jesus Christ himself. And in the book of John, he told us why it was he wrote this book. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this morning, I want to talk about this difficult subject of despair and suffering, because Christ encounters a man who's in a state of despair, and we see how it is he interacts with him and what he does. And we can use this as an example in our own lives. And the four movements of Christ I want to talk about this today are noticing the sufferer, helping the sufferer, accepting the consequences. There were consequences that Christ was going to have to deal with as a matter of uh, helping this person out, and then finally moving towards the gospel. Notice what he said there at the end. He brings up this subject of sin to a man that he had just healed. So let's start out this morning talking about the first part, noticing the sufferer. So Jesus, he's leaving this area of Galilee. He's working his way back to Jerusalem. He's going to be going to a feast there. But when he enters into the city, uh, he comes through the Sheep Gate, and there he comes across these pools. They call them the pools of Bethesda or maybe Bethsaida. The truth is it's a hard word to translate into English. But there is an upper pool and a lower pool, and this man was lying beside one of these pools. And they had become so popular, they built these porches around them. These, they call them colonnades around these two pools. And they've been designated a place of healing. Now, by the time John wrote this particular gospel, 
he knew that the people receiving it were going to be people who were suffering. As a matter of fact, this is going to mark the beginning of Christ's persecution. He's going to be judged for what it is that he's doing. He's going to be brought before these Pharisees and questioned, why are you doing this? And John knew the readers would also be going through a time of trial, which is why he's introducing this in this way. Jesus does something loving and compassionate, and for that he's going to be judged unfairly. Now these Christians would have been going through something uh, equally difficult. They were going to have to learn how to live in a culture that did not want them. The Jewish culture didn't want anything to do with these Christians because they were living without the law. These Jews couldn't get that through their head. Well, wait a minute. These Gentiles, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to live according to these 700-some-odd laws. How do they do that? They were persecuted by the Jews, and they were persecuted by the Romans. The Romans could not understand these Christians. Now, they had a lot of respect for Judaism. They loved things that were ancient in Roman culture. But Christianity was new, and it wasn't just new, but they were doing really weird stuff. You know, at one point they had heard that these Jews, these, or rather these Christians were cannibals because they ate flesh and drank blood. We know that as communion, but they thought that was cannibalistic. They thought that these Christians were incestuous because they called everybody their brother and sister. Even their own spouse they may refer to as their brother or their sister in Christ. They were antisocial. They didn't participate in the games. And they didn't worship the right gods. So these were Christians that were going to be going through trials. And now we're getting to this portion of John where Jesus is going to be put on trial like the recipients of John's message. So then we come back to this, this pool. And it had a superstition around it. It had a number of names. But it becomes so popular, again, it had been designated as healing sanctuary. And traditionally, they believed that when the waters would stir, the first person in the water would be healed. Now, there was a group of people that actually believed maybe an angel was going down in there and stirring around the waters. And there was, there was something interesting going on in this part of John chapter 5. You may or may not have noticed, but um, I didn't read verse 4. And that's because verse Four, uh, if you've got a King James Version, it's included there, but most of the later translations don't include verse 4 because as time went on, they discovered older manuscripts and figured out, oh, wait a minute. Um, verse 4 was a, what they call a scribal edition. Uh, and by the way, on Thursday nights, we've been looking in depth. If you're curious about how these scribes went about copying manuscripts, and sometimes they would add a few things. This is what we're talking about on the... Uh, the Theology Thursday classes that we're doing. And so if you're interested in this, you can do a deep dive. But in essence, it's been left out because it was, uh, it was discovered that that particular verse, verse 4, was not part of the original manuscripts. So it was superstition that the waters would stir. And this poor man was unable to get to the water in time. Now that's a problem. He was going to be dependent on someone to carry him into the water if he was going to get into the water. But try to imagine being a, a paralytic at this time in history. The only way you could get to the bathroom was if someone were to carry you there, and there were probably very few people who were willing to do that. 
So his hygiene would have been, it would have been horrible. This is somebody that no one wanted to be around. The stench of him would have been heavy. People would ignore him. They'd walk past him. But then Jesus walks in. And we get to the beginning of verse 6 and what happens. I thought it was up here. It says Jesus saw him. Jesus notices this, this sufferer. It's a wonderful phrase. See, Jesus notices the man that everyone would have walked around, everyone that, that would have ignored him. A man laying there suffering all this time. And you know what? Jesus, he also sees you. He knows what you're feeling. He knows that you're hurting. He knows that emotional pain that no one else can see. Whenever I used to coach small group leaders, I always told them, try and find out what makes somebody cry when nobody's looking. Because if you can find that out, then you really know something important about this person. So Jesus noticed him. He saw him. And nowhere in the pages of the Bible will you ever get the sense that if someone is suffering or if someone is in despair, that they should be ignored or looked over. It's always the opposite. Find them. The worst thing you can do is ignore a person because, you know, and, and I get it. You know, you, there's this sense in which we're afraid we're going to say something stupid, right? I know that feeling very well. When you open up your mouth and you're afraid the dumb's going to fall out and you're with somebody who's suffering, it's like, well, I'm just afraid I'm going to say something and it's going to make things worse than they already are. I don't like to go to the hospital because I don't know what to say to those people. Listen, you don't have to say anything. If you're just with that person, if you listen to that person, I love Rick Warren used to say that you show up and you shut up. As a matter of fact, I came across a letter of a a Christian man, he was suffering with something called fibromyalgia. If you know what that is, it's a really painful uh, neurological condition in, in the feet and I think, and maybe other parts of the body. But um, in essence, he wrote a letter to his friends and his colleagues to offer them ideas on what a sufferer needs and doesn't need from those around him. He says he commonly struggled with depression and struggles with depression, and many people with a disability do. But it was the last paragraph of what this man wrote to his friends and colleagues that really struck me. He said, when I mention my pain or chronic illness, please don't skip over it or look away. We don't have to discuss my health constantly, but I can't ignore it all the time either. Bear with me, accept me as I am, and try to understand my situation. He said, please grant me the same respect and faith as I make my way down this road I didn't choose but must travel. Listen, you can't fix. We would all like to be able to heal someone like Jesus, and we may pray to that end. But what people need is someone that will hear them. So take notice. If someone is hurting, if somebody's in pain, notice the suffering that they're going through. Don't ignore it. And then if you can, perhaps, we also want to help the sufferer. Help the sufferer. And we come back to the side of the pool, and, and Jesus knew this paralyzed man had been there for a long time. Then he asked him this question. He says, do you want to be healed? Now, it's like, well, what kind of question is this? I mean, Jesus, like, don't you already know? 
I mean, he's been at this pool forever. He's, he's suffering and he's, and he's hurting. But see, the fact is, some people, unfortunately, would rather stay in their misery. Because when Jesus comes in, he's also going to bring the light with him. He's going to expose sin. We go back to chapter 3, and look at what he said in verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So he asked the man. And evidently, Jesus didn't deliver people who were unwilling or did not want to be healed. And if you've ever tried to help someone who didn't think they were suffering or didn't think they needed help, that is not an easy thing to do. Try and help a five-year-old who has decided they don't need help. Or even try and help an addict who doesn't realize that they have a problem. They need to understand that they have a problem, that they are suffering, and they need help. But this is a man who wants his condition to change. The man proceeds to tell him that he's got no one to put him in the pool, no friends, no family, nowhere else to turn, except to this mysterious man that he does not know. He's taken an interest unlike anybody else, asking him what appears to be the obvious question. Now, in asking this, the man may be assuming, okay, well, he's going to wait till the water bubbles up a little bit, and he's going to carry me into the water, but that's not what Jesus is going to do. And by the way, you may be thinking, well, why didn't Jesus just heal everybody? Couldn't he just tell them all to stand up and pick up their mats and follow him? But he didn't do that. And this man didn't appear to have any more faith than anyone else. But one question is, were they hopeless? See, the fact that they were at the, at the side of the pool meant that they probably still believed that their answer was there in the water. And that water could heal them. Because, see, some people aren't yet ready to put their trust in Christ. They think they've got something else that's going to work for them. They're holding out hope for something else. And Christ is graciously meeting this man where he is. He's commanding them, don't just walk, but take up your bed. Show everybody that you are strong and you have strength and you're capable of, of doing something that you didn't do before. So there's no doubts as that you've been completely healed. See, no longer is this man hopeless, but, but this man is still going to get sick and die. And unless he finds more to Christ than just being a healer, he's going to despair all over again. You see, because what hope is there if there is not a God? What hope is there if we're just sort of these mindless animals that are just going through life, maybe surviving, maybe finding happiness here and there, but there's no point to anything? See, this is why the Christian can move beyond despair. And if you are in that place of despair, and if you're going to be honest, maybe you've even had something uh, it's referred to as suicidal ideations. In other words, it's gotten so bad for you that you've actually thought to yourself, you know, I think I'd be better off if I wasn't here. If you're going to be really honest, maybe you've even thought about how you'd do it. If you're in that place, and by the way, many godly people in the Old Testament got to the place where they wanted to die. But if you're in that place, first of all, I want you to know that I love you. 
and I care about you. And if you're in that place, talk to me. And by the way, there's people sitting around you that care about you and will love you if you give them the chance to do that. One of the best moments of my entire teenage life, when I was a depressed, confused, 14, 15-year-old boy, as slump-shouldered as I could be, leaning against a wall, really not even knowing what to do with myself, completely self-conscious, bullied, insecure, was one man that came up to me. He was the youth pastor at First Baptist Church, Dunbar, West Virginia. 1989, saw me there and looked at me and said, Chad, it gets better. That's all he had to say. I'll never forget that. He didn't lecture me. He didn't tell me to straighten up. He just said, don't be so down. You've got too much to be thankful for. He didn't say any of that. So many people here just need to hear a word from you. Can you offer someone just a little bit of encouragement? You know, there's this guy named, uh, his name's Don Ritchie. And he used to live beside a cliff that was used for suicidal jumps. He lived there for 50 years. This is in uh, Sydney, Australia. It's called The Gap. And this man single-handedly prevented 400 people from killing themselves. You see, he got to the point where he could recognize somebody who was about to do it. They would walk up to the edge. They would look over. He could tell they were being contemplative. So he would walk out of his house. He would go up to that person, and he would just say one thing. He'd smile, and he'd say, why don't you come and have a cup of tea? People would accept the offer. They'd be invited into his home. They'd have a chat over tea. No counseling, no advising, no prying. It was just one person lending a listening ear to another. Some of the people had mental problems. Some had medical problems. They may have been just in a rush path, patch in life. But all they needed was a listening ear, and they would change their minds about jumping after that chat. How many of the people that you pass on the street, that you go to school with, that might be sitting here in this auditorium right now, they just need to know that somebody is willing to listen? Because, see, as Christians, we want to be situated right there on the edge of that cliff, offering hope, offering love, offering a listening ear to someone. And we should point to Jesus who says to them, come to me and I will give you rest. But, see, just by showing someone that you love and care about them is showing them the love of Christ. That's how people would know you and what you believe. Because you chose to love them. And it can give them a living hope beyond the walls of this world. That's the hope of Christ, and that's the hope of the gospel. So we notice the sufferer. If we can, we help the sufferer. And then we accept the consequences. Helping people often comes with a price tag. And like I said, Jesus would have known that by helping this man... He's already being observed by these, these Jews, this religious crowd. They're, they're watching him. 
And it's setting the stage for a larger issue of being put on trial for performing this healing on the Sabbath. Look at the end of verse 9 and verse 10. Now, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, this poor guy, he'd been for 38 years, he'd been suffering and laying, and this is the best they could come up with. Uh, you're breaking the law here. Are you aware that we have... Uh, Technically, he was, more so by the Jewish, the rabbinic interpretation of the law. There were rules about working on the Sabbath. You could carry a lame person, but to carry a mat was a problem. They didn't understand why Jesus gave them the laws about the Sabbath. It was about taking a day off from working and enjoying it. Then this man, he, def he defends himself by blaming the one who told him to do it. He throws Jesus under the bus. It's not clear that we ever see this man come to faith in Christ. Not everyone who experienced a miracle is going to be in heaven. Many people accept God's gifts but ignore the giver. But even though Jesus gets thrown under the bus, even though there was no real gratitude and he'd have to undergo questioning by these Jewish authorities, it didn't prevent him from helping a man in need. That man, Don Ritchie, it would have been easier to stay in his house to avoid an uncomfortable conversation but he went out there to meet those people. Jesus is going to show us how much he loves us, that even when he's in complete agony, hanging on a cross he's been nailed to, he's going to cry out to his Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. There was a story about Martin Luther, the reformer. He was reading an account of Abraham, you know, Abraham, if you recall, he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, but he ended up not having to. His wife Katie said to him, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. Luther replied, yes, he did. Forgiving people, bearing with people, showing them love and compassion to who is in need, no matter what they believe. See, we notice, we help, we accept whatever consequences may come with, with extending that help. And then we see Jesus make a move toward the gospel. It says in verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, some have thought, well, he must have committed some sin that got him into this predicament that he's in, but I don't believe that's what's happening here. I believe that Jesus is telling him, you may be physically well now, but you are still spiritually sick. And you are a sinner. And no, you can't just stop sinning, but you are going to see that if you are a sinner, you're going to need a Savior. He's pointing him back to himself. Because this man is still going to get sick and die. And there's two deaths. As a matter of fact, this past week, I was hearing... Uh, Shane and Kendall were teaching the students about the two deaths. There's the first physical death that we all go through at the end of our lives, but then there's a second death. And it's the death that constitutes an eternal separation from God in a place called hell. See, that's why this man is still in danger. He still has to put his faith in Christ. But it's easy to miss our condition. There was a pastor uh, named Dan Meyer who told a story about being in Ecuador and seeing the absolute horrific conditions there. He said he looked around and saw the diseased 
and disfigured bodies. He said a home there would constitute a, a hole in the ground. The people were eating rotten food. They owned trash as their possessions. But he said they didn't seem to understand their condition. Why? Because everybody lived that way. They'd been never been given a picture of a genuinely healthy human being. They didn't know what abundant life really looked like. He goes on to say, that's our problem. It's the reason we think of ourselves largely as innocent people is because everybody around us is just doing the same thing we're doing. And we can get lost in the sins of the culture because it looks, it looks normal. In Psalm 14, David says that the one fully healthy being in the universe views the human race like we might view those people in that foreign third world country. David, in Psalm 14, said, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is, no, there is none who does good, not even one. See, if you're here this morning you've not put your faith in Christ, you're spiritually sick. You may be physically well, but you need a physician. You need a doctor. You need a savior. And Christ came and he took the sickness, the disease in the world called sin, he put it in himself, and he sacrificed himself on the cross. And it's by trusting in who he is and what he did that we can become spiritually well. So putting this all together, Listen, love, and share Christ to those who are suffering and in despair. Enter into a world for the purpose of loving the people you find there, listening to them, showing an interest, and then making a move toward the gospel, presenting them with a Christ who says, my burden is light, and it's easy. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we, we need you more than we even can comprehend, Lord, and you love us more than we can scarcely comprehend, and you loved us so much that you sacrificed that which was most dear to you, Father, your only Son, for us. And I ask that we would see the example of Christ and be willing to love people sacrificially, to meet them where they are to hear their story, to love them, to share Christ with them, but also to show them that we will love them if they believe us or not. God, I pray for someone here who, who's here in a state of despair, and they've lost hope. And maybe even the past week or this morning, they've even had thoughts of taking their own life. Lord, I pray they would know how dearly loved they are, how precious they are, how much they can contribute how you can take their life and give them purpose and meaning so that someday when you decide to take them home, then they can enter into your gates and God can look at them and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. God, I pray that we would live with hope that you're working in us and through us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you all so much for being here today. If you are in need of prayer, if you want to talk to somebody, I'll be down here at the front. I'm hoping that there might be one or two elders that could join me up here as well. We'd love to pray for you if whatever may be uh, troubling you or on your mind. Otherwise, have a wonderful day, and we'll see you soon.